All right. Well, hey, good morning again, guys. Uh, my name is Tad Anderson. I'm the lead teaching pastor of the Hub City Church. And, and once again, we, we welcome you. Uh, if I've not met you, I would love to do that after the service. And so I'll sneak outside and try to catch you on your way out uh, in order to do that. But uh, just a little bit about our church. Uh, we have a really simple vision and mission statement. It's to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey God's word to the glory of God. And so uh, just everything we do, we, we hope and we, we strive uh, for, that, for that goal. And so that's, that's what we're all about, if you're uh, wondering. Yeah, but anyway, I got a few announcements before we get to the, to the word this morning. The first thing is uh, our men's camping trip is this upcoming Friday. So we're getting close to that, guys. And uh, just want to, as a matter of prayer, let you know we've been tracking the weather on that. Uh, and it's been no rain, and now there's rain just on that one, like right leading up to that day. So uh, I was also told this morning, apparently there's a burn ban because there hasn't been rain. So I'm kind of like, Lord, are you trying to help us work this thing out? So maybe like you could pray specifically that it would rain before we get there, and then we could still have a fire and eat meat and do manly stuff and uh, hear the word preached by Lewis Miller. So uh, anyway, that's just letting you know uh, to those who have signed up. There are still slots available. If you've not signed up, we'd love for you to come with us for that. It's going to be a good time. Um, so yeah, uh, the next thing is uh, I need to kind of give you a, a picture of what uh, we're doing next in regards to uh, outreach. We do have our uh, Thanksgiving outreach coming up. Uh, every year, maybe you're aware if you've been here for any amount of time, that we, we do have a big Thanksgiving outreach that we do uh, here in our city. And it kind of started out, the vision for that was just the fact that, hey, we realize as the body of Christ, um, we, I mean, who doesn't love Thanksgiving, right? Turkey and all this stuff, you know. But um, we have Thanksgiving all the time. <laughs> we're Jesus' people. We're Jesus' Uh, family, we're God's family, and so we're we're having Thanksgiving all the time. We're always breaking bread together in one another's homes. We're always giving glory to God and thanks uh, giving to God for for what He has provided for us. And so, on uh, a day like Thanksgiving, why not try to take Thanksgiving and the gospel to others here in our community who really need it most? And so that has been the heart behind our Thanksgiving outreach for. Uh, several years running now, and uh, just letting you know the way these kinds these kinds of things work is you know sometimes some years it goes off without a hitch. Sometimes we run into some issues, and so we kind of kind of work that out logistically on the back end. And so there are some changes, uh, but so let me kind of fill you in on that a little bit. Uh, the first thing is usually we have done this outreach on Thanksgiving Day uh, downtown here uh, because there's a lot of folks downtown who. Who are in need, and so uh, that's that's why we picked that area. But we have noticed over the past couple of years that we haven't been getting a good turnout uh, downtown. There were some some really rundown homes down there that were uh, unfortunately bulldozed several years ago by by the city for good reason, I'm sure. But um, that was where a lot of the folks were that we were serving. Uh, and so now Thanksgiving morning hasn't been working out, but. Uh, Matt Davidson, our student leader, uh, has been faithful to go over there and kind of scope it out. And apparently in the afternoon, uh, early evening time, there are a lot of folks congregating down there who we might be able to serve. So our hope is to, instead of doing this on Thanksgiving Day, uh, do it on Thanksgiving Eve, uh, the, the day before Thanksgiving, the afternoon before uh, Thanksgiving Day. I know that's a big change. I know people's schedules are, are crazy, but that's what we're going to do because uh, we want to serve as many people as we can. So uh, we hope that you guys will, will try to make that work if you're able to and, and join us for that as we pass out meals. The way we do it is as a body, we prep the meals, we prep the food on the front end. Uh, and so we'll need lots of volunteers who are able to do that. Uh, and then we bring it all to one central location and we actually divvy out the food um, there. And so that's, that's really what that looks like. Last year, there was another really cool part uh, of this outreach that began to develop. So um, we do have a ministry you know, that we do different things for the Crestview Manor uh, here in Crestview as well. And so we were able to serve Thanksgiving meals to the, to the residents there at the Crestview Manor, and that was really good as well. So we're going to aim to do that. Uh, again, and then, like I said, uh, or sorry, like my wife said at the beginning of this service, we are going to pack box Thanksgiving meals for some of the families uh, at Northwood whose children are part of the backpack program. So it's kind of a 
kind of a multifaceted uh, front this year for Thanksgiving uh, and, the, and the outreach. We're really looking forward to it. it. But like I said, it's a lot of moving parts. And so we would love uh, if you are able, if you would jump in with us and, and consider serving in, in one way uh, or another. Every year we have people who, some people who just prep food, you know, uh, some people who just come and help pass out food, some people who are there for the whole time and do everything, you know, from start to finish. And so whatever you're able to do, we would love to have you um, do that with us this year. And, and most of all, um, consider going out into our community and um, using meals as a way to share the gospel uh, with people who, who, who really need hope, uh, particularly at this time uh, of year. So that's kind of the big picture of what we're going to be doing uh, logistically. If that all sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, but you have questions, uh, I understand. We are going to have an interest meeting uh, next Sunday directly following the service. And uh, we typically do that in the multi-purpose room. So that's what we'll plan uh, to do next week after service. Um, we'll just all get our kids and, and head over there. And uh, we'll talk about really just the details of how we are going to try to pull this big Thanksgiving um, outreach off. So yeah, we'd love if you guys would consider being a part of that. But all right, let's, let's move on to the, to the word now. Um, we're currently in a series called That's Messed Up about sin and redemption based on situations found in the Old Testament narrative of Genesis. And uh, each week, we are highlighting a person or persons from Genesis who, due to their sin, found themselves in a mess. And we're, we're doing our best to kind of principalize uh, the particular sin they committed so that we can understand it and potentially identify it in our own hearts and lives. Because the truth is, Scripture tells us that while Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came to live a, a perfect life on our behalf so that he could impute his righteousness to us, so that he could credit his perfection to our account, and while Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved, washing our sin away and atoning for it with his blood. And while three days later, after being buried, he rose again from the grave, defeating death, proving himself to be our Savior, God and King, and offering us the same hope of resurrection at his return that we might experience eternal life forever with him in the life to come in a new heaven and new earth where the power and presence of sin are vanquished. All that's true. All that's true. That's the good news of the gospel, friends, that there is real hope for sinners like us. But while all that is true, we are continuing to live in what many theologians have called this age of already and not yet. Already and not yet. It's this tension of the Christian life that while we can have justification by faith alone, in the grace of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, while we can be made perfect positionally in an instant by faith, our becoming perfect practically is a process that takes all of life and that we're told will not be complete until we see Christ face to face at his return when he comes to take us home. Right, and bring our salvation to its consummate completion. And in the meantime, in these last days, we are, as Jesus' disciples, to be putting sin to death. Putting sin to death. And to boil it down, the way uh, that we put sin to death is we identify it in all of its forms, attitudes, and actions, thoughts, words, and deeds, and by grace-driven effort with the help of God's word and the indwelling spirit of God who has been given to us as our great helper, we say, no, no, we're done with that way of living. We put off the old self, and then we put on the new self, which means instead of the sinful ways that we had been living, we replace them with 
holy, God-glorifying ways of living. That's what redemption is. Do you know that? That's what redemption is. It's, it's not just being rescued from the punishment of our sin. It's being empowered to, over time, progressively stop sinning in favor of a better way of life with Jesus. The way that we were truly created to live as image bearers, sons and daughters of God, priests and ambassadors of his eternal kingdom. And so uh, I say all that on the front end because I want you to hopefully see that a church that does not teach on sin is a church that is short-circuiting and cheapening the gospel message. Okay, Because as we grow in our understanding of sin, we grow into a knowledge of how much we truly have been forgiven and a deeper reliance on God's grace. Jesus says, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he says that whoever knows they've been forgiven much will love God much. Right? And that's what we're after, church. That's what we're after. A, a right understanding of who our holy God is, who we are in light of who he is, and what he has done for us, that we might live the life that we were actually created to live. Okay. So with all that said this morning, we'll be considering the life of a man named Lot who was Abraham's less famous and less faithful nephew, who we learn the most about in Genesis chapter 19. So let's pray. If you know anything about Lot, you know we're really going to need it here. So let's, let's pray. Father, that we never lose our sense of awe and wonder at your amazing grace that you have freely extended to us in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for that gospel that unites and fuels this family of believers called the Hub City Church. And thank you specifically for this morning that we're able to gather together to make much of Jesus through our singing and the reading and consideration of your word. God, I pray that as we grow, these things would always stay central to our DNA as the body of Christ. I pray that because of the story in Genesis that we're considering this morning, Lord, and the portrait of a man, this man Lot, who was such a conflicted man, torn between his love for the world and his supposed faith in you. God, this is a challenging passage of Scripture, so I pray that, as always, your Holy Spirit would do the work in our hearts that my words cannot. God, help me. And God, search us, challenge us, help us, where we may be growing lukewarm in our faith. We don't want that, Father. We want to be people who only grow, not who diminish in our faith. We don't want our love to grow cold for you. We don't want to be a people who are conflicted. We want to be totally committed to the gospel of our Lord Jesus and the mission of his church pray that this message today would be helpful to that end as an exhortation and a warning to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, well, I want to begin this conversation about Lot with a confession. I almost did not preach this sermon. I almost intentionally passed right over Lot. And here's why. Lot has one of the most absolutely jacked up stories, maybe in the whole Bible. Uh, and that's saying a lot because there are some, some ugly things that happen in the Bible. But that's not the entire reason that I almost skipped over talking about him. In order for you to understand my hesitancy with Lot, uh, I need to just go ahead and tell you about him. 
Uh, last week and in weeks prior, I have uh, read a relatively lengthy text on some of the people that we have discussed from Genesis, but today um, is going to be a little bit different because there is just too much that I would have to read, um, over 40 verses just in Genesis 19 alone. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize it for you instead, hitting the kind of the critical pieces, and then I'm going to encourage you to read it for yourself later if you have not done so previously. So let's go ahead and get started. There's a lot to cover uh, with Lot. So the journey actually begins way back in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham to follow him. Uh, it actually starts on a pretty encouraging note. When Abraham leaves his hometown of Ur, uh, the much younger and unmarried Lot decides to go with his uncle on this adventure of faith. Uh, presumably, they had a close bond because Abraham didn't have any children at that point. And so it, it seems kind of a sweet thing that Lot decides to go uh, and tag along with his beloved uncle. Uh, well, in the course of time, the Lord blesses Abraham greatly with material wealth, and Lot becomes a beneficiary of this wealth. In chapter 13, it says that the two men, Abraham and Lot, had acquired so many possessions and livestock that they couldn't even dwell in the same land together, uh, which came to a tipping point when, Abram, uh, when Abraham's herdsmen and, and Lot's herdsmen, uh, that tells you how wealthy they were, they didn't have herds, they didn't just have herds, they had herdsmen, right? And their herdsmen were squabbling with one another over the grazing areas for their livestock. So Abraham, uh, being gracious, said, Let's not have any strife between us, Lot. We're family. Why don't you pick whatever part of the land that looks good to you, and I'll just go somewhere else. I'll go the other way, the other direction. So Lot surveys the land, and he decides that he likes what he sees in the Jordan Valley. We learn that it's a lush and well-watered area. That's what the scriptures say, which seems innocent enough. But we're also told as a foreshadowing detail that Lot had his eye on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah there in the valley. So that's where Lot goes, and Abraham goes the other way to the land of Canaan. Well, some more time passes, and to make a long story short, there was some drama among the pagan peoples of the valley uh, where Lot decided to dwell. And so a war flares up among the kings of the different tribes And Lot winds up being collateral damage. Uh, Some of these pirate-like kings take Lot captive in the midst of the fighting, and and they loot all of his possessions, and they take off. Well, Abraham, by God's grace, uh, here's what has happened. He he takes all uh, 300-plus strong men of his entourage, and they go and they fight, and they rescue Lot, and they win Uh, So they get all of Lot's possessions and his people and his livestock back. And at this point, the king of Sodom uh, offers Abraham a hefty reward for helping him uh, as a result of helping Lot, but Abraham turns it down, right? Now, you might expect that Lot would have realized at this point that his godly uncle had made the wiser decision about where to live and get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he doesn't. He goes right back. He goes right back. Well, some more time passes, and the Lord sends some angels to Abraham and tells him that because of the grave nature of the debaucherous sin within the culture of Sodom and the other cities of the valley that he is going to just wipe it all off the map. Okay. So Abraham, maybe you know this story, Abraham appeals to the Lord here, and he says, but Lord, um, surely you're not going to kill the righteous people there along with the unrighteous, are you? He goes back and forth with the Lord. Ultimately, God says no, that he would spare any righteous people who might theoretically be there. Really, Abraham is concerned for who? His nephew Lot, right? 
Well, then we get to Genesis 19. And what happens is the two angels, they go to Sodom to check it out. And Lot meets them there at the city gate, offering for them to stay with him that night. They decline at first, and they say they'll, they'll stay in the town square for the night, but Lot urges them. And so they agree to stay with him. Well, we, we quickly find out why Lot was so insistent. That night, it says that all of the men of the city come to Lot's house, and they demand that he give up the angels to them so that they can have forceful homosexual relations with them. There's a term for this I won't use. I know there are children here today. But this is where the term sodomy originates. So Lot pleads with the men of the city to not act so wickedly. But then strangely, he offers up his own daughters to the men instead, which is just unbelievably awful, as you would think that a righteous man would rather die than let that happen to his daughters. But thankfully, I say that loosely, the men of the town are not appeased by that anyway. They demand access to the angels. And so the angels strike the men of Sodom with blindness to hold them off. At this point, the angels bring Lot in on what's really going on here. They were there to scope out the sinful decline of the city, and they've determined that everyone there is wicked, supposedly with the exception of Lot. And so they tell him to flee because they're about to destroy it all with fire. So Lot then, interestingly, goes outside to tell his sons-in-law, who were engaged to marry his daughters, to flee with their family. But these men are apparently just as wicked as the other men of Sodom, which tells you something about Lot's passivity as a father. And so these men laugh in Lot's face as though God's wrath is a joke. So the angels tell Lot to take his wife, who... That's an interesting detail. He has a wife now who was apparently a pagan woman from Sodom that he had married. And he tells his, uh, his wife, his daughters, they, they flee to the hills, right? The angels tell them to flee to the hills. But while you would think, again, you would think at this point that Lot would be shaken and realize how far off track he had allowed his life and his family to go. He actually has the audacity to plead with the angels to let him flee to a nearby town called Zoar that we know was just as involved with pagan wickedness. It was just smaller. The angels, you can imagine, have got to roll their eyes at this point when they basically say, fine, we'll do that for you as a favor out of mercy. Well, when they're about to unleash the fire of God from the sky to rain down in judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they tell Lot to go, and the text says, but he lingered. He still lingered. So the angels, as an act, another act of the Lord's mercy, they forcefully pull him and his family out of the city and they tell them to escape with their lives and not to even look back or stop because if they did, they would be swept away. So they finally, I guess, grasp the seriousness of the situation. They start to leave, but it says that Lot's wife, she just can't do it. So she turns back and she's consumed by the sulfur and the fire from heaven. This is famously where it says that she was turned into a pillar of salt. So at this point, Lot has all but lost everything because of his own stubborn entanglements with the sinful culture. And it says that he becomes fearful of staying in Zoar, probably because of the trauma that he had been through and the continued sinfulness of, of that town. But instead of going back, you would think, he might go back to his uncle. Instead of going back to his uncle Abraham, who would probably have gladly taken him in, in a mixture of fear and pride, he flees with his daughters to the hills and decides to hole up in a cave by himself, isolated for the rest of his life. 
And as sad as that is, I wish it were the end of Lot's story, but it's not. Lot's adult daughters, the sinful culture of Sodom ingrained in them, decide to deceive their father in the literal and figurative darkness of the cave. In fear, the scripture says that they themselves will never have families of their own. They make a morally revolting plan to each get their father drunk on different nights and to sleep with him so that he can impregnate them. And the end of Genesis 19 says that's exactly what happened. Incest. But each time it occurred, Lot was apparently unaware of what he had done in his drunken stupor. So this is the perverse end of Lot's story, which is so messed up, you can see why, for that reason alone, I would like to have not taught on it. But as I reflected, not only on the disgusting conclusion to Lot's life, but on the whole picture, as I've just summarized for you, I realized once again that as much as I and we in our modern sensibilities would probably like to distance ourselves from seeing any correlation between our lives and the life of a man like Lot, if we are honest, and I know that's challenging, if we're honest, we must consider that this sordid saga is included in God's divinely inspired word for a good reason. 1 Corinthians 10 says of the Old Testament people of God, says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Translation, there is a lesson for the church even in the life of Lot. And it's not so simple as the avoidance of a universally known taboo like incest. Even unchristian people, non-Christian people know that's wrong. No, I think it's, it's much more challenging than that. Much more challenging because we may all be a lot more familiar with it than we initially realize. You see, here is the other half of why I literally, or I initially shied away from this story of Lot. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're told something very strange about Lot. Let me read it to you. 2 Peter 2, verse 7 and 8 says, If God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, over what he saw and heard. Okay, stop right there. Did you catch that? I'm sorry, did, did that say righteous lot? Friends, as your pastor, I want you to know that I am perplexed. I'm perplexed. By Peter's assessment here, I, I don't fully get it. I, I look at the story of Lot, and I don't see very much that could be construed to call Lot righteous. And yet, when I come upon these verses, I must stand corrected, lest I presume that God has erred. I do not believe that. I believe that God's word is inerrant. Infallible, totally sufficient. And so what are we to do with Lot and his alleged, and might I add, largely hidden righteousness? I think all that we can do is form a category in our minds for this kind of person. And so in your notes and in the remainder of our discussion today, I'm going to call this type of sinfulness that we read of in the life of Lot, I'm going to call it half-heartedness. Half-heartedness. 
And here's how I define it in your notes there. Sins of half-heartedness are committed when the heart is conflicted between genuine faith in God and lingering love for the world. A conflict between genuine faith in God and lingering love for the world. If in the final assessment of the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures, Lot was indeed a righteous man, then this is the best judgment that we can make about the kind of life that he lived. Conflicted. Inconsistent. Divided. He was a righteous man. He was righteous. And yet he chose twice to reside in the gross pagan context of Sodom. And then when that had come to an end due to divine judgment, he asked to flee to Zoar, what some Bible scholars have referred to as little Sodom. He was righteous, and yet he married a Sodomite woman who ultimately chose to rather perish in the fire of God's judgment than accept his gracious opportunity to flee and leave her pagan lifestyle behind. He was righteous, and yet he had allowed his daughters to intermarry with sodomite men who were apparently enthralled with grotesque forms of sexual sin. And if that, then who knows what else. He was righteous, and yet rather than finally repent for straddling the fence of faith in God and love for the world, he ran away and isolated himself in the darkness where he shamefully became a partaker in the wickedness that he so apparently despised. Guys, I I almost didn't preach this message because I was confused about what lessons we could possibly learn from the life of Lot. But I hope that you are beginning to see what I saw after awkwardly wrestling with the portrait of this spiritually conflicted man. The lesson is this. You don't have to commit the same heinous acts that Lot did in order to be like him. You don't have to commit the same heinous acts that Lot did in order to become, be like him. All you have to do is to be torn between two cultures the culture of faith in Christ, and the culture of worldly pleasure. All you have to do in order to be like Lot is claim the name of Christ and live out a life that's ultimately indistinguishable from the world. This is half-heartedness. Hidden Christianity. Be a Christian that no one can really tell is a Christian. I'm indebted to the astute articulation of Kent Hughes regarding Lot and the category that he fits into. Hughes says this, If we only had the Old Testament, we would never have imagined that Lot was a true believer. But Peter tells us that this conflicted, compromised little man was righteous and that he was distressed and tormented by life in Sodom. Ironically, though Lot was revolted by Sodom, Sodom was in his soul. It's impossible then to be, or sorry, it is, it is possible then to be distressed by the world while hanging on to it for dear life. So we see that it's possible for believing people like us who are truly distressed by the course of this world to live lives that are so profoundly influenced by culture that Sodom is reborn in the lives of those who we love most. This is a convicting word, isn't it? Especially for people who at this juncture of human history are living in the most prominent country in a world that has not only taken on the culture of Sodom, but that insists that everyone celebrate it as good. A culture where vulgarity is normative, perversion is encouraged as the epitome of freedom, greed and overindulgence are touted as the goal. 
and where faith in the God of the Bible is viewed as stupid, crazy, bigoted, and even radically harmful to others. And lest we say amen to all this in order to comfort ourselves, we must remember that this is not the point of the lesson of Lot. The point is that we can agree that our culture is in depraved opposition to Christ and yet still inwardly love it and refuse to set ourselves apart from it. This is the dangerous category that if we're honest, we will admit is not only possible, but quite common, even among churches like our own who claim to know and love the gospel. Half-heartedness, professed faith in Christ, mixed with a lingering love for the things of the world. You know, in my early 20s, I was really into fitness prior to the acquisition of this dad bod. And (laughs) what I started to realize about weight loss and living a healthier lifestyle in, in general was that it didn't just happen in the gym. Um, and that, that most people don't struggle with just going to the gym as much as they struggle with being disciplined in their eating. See, you can walk on a treadmill for an hour a day, but if you eat like garbage, your physique will not change much. It's only when you combine putting healthy stuff in and putting hard work out that more dramatic transformation begins to happen. And as I've said previously, there's, there are a lot of parallels between physical health and spiritual health. You can come to a church service like this every Sunday. But if you're not putting the right things in to your soul throughout the week, a whole lot probably won't change. If you're putting into your heart a steady diet of worldly things for the majority of your time, regardless of church attendance, worldly is probably how your life will continue to look. And your faith will probably be assessed like lots, as half-hearted at best. And so the next point in your notes is this. The category of half-hearted faith is indiscernible from nominal faith because it is consumed with the cares, riches, and pleasures of the world and thus should not console us but serve as a warning to us. You see, I think it's helpful to juxtapose the life of Abraham with the life of Lot. We talked about Abraham and the sin of faithlessness a few weeks ago. And when we talked about Abraham, here's what we said. If you were here, you remember this. Um, In large part, Abraham was an incredibly faithful man, right? You could see it in his life. Leaving his home with no idea what was going to happen to him to follow the Lord waiting for 25 years, continuing to trust God's promises all all the while, a willingness to sacrifice even his own son, if that's what God called him to do, out of belief that God can raise the dead. Abraham's life could be characterized with an identity of faithfulness and a few instances of, of faithlessness. And so we took comfort from that reality. Do you remember? Believing that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful to us and he completes the work that he's begun in us. But this same characterization is not true of Lot. Lot's life 
would be characterized as the opposite, an identity of worldliness with maybe a few instances of faith. He was, I mean, I'm trying here. I mean, he was kind to the angels who came on behalf of the Lord. But even in his attempt to protect them, he was willing to tarnish the purity of his own daughters. He left Sodom, but only after being forcibly drug away. He called the Sodomites wicked, but then he himself wound up engaging in sin that was just as gross. And so I think what I have to teach here is that we should not take comfort in the fact that Lot was considered righteous because we really have no way of discerning his life from the life of a nominal believer. That is, without these two verses in 2 Peter chapter 2, if, if, if we look at Lot's life, if he had claimed to love God, we would probably discern his profession to be insincere based on the way that he lived. So we should not look at Lot and think, awesome, <laughs> I, can, I can call myself a Christian and just live as close to the sinful culture as I want and be good. Because Lot is the exception in Scripture, not the rule. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about the possibility of a person who stands on the foundation of the gospel, but whose life is built with worldly materials. And here's what he says. He says, though he will himself be saved, it will only be as through fire, which seems very unpleasant and also seems to describe a lot pretty well. Jesus describes someone like this in the parable of the sower. In the parable, if you're familiar with it, the sower is Christ. The seed is the gospel. And the soils are the hearts of different people. And he describes, Jesus describes one kind of heart soil as being covered in thorns. Do you remember this one? In Luke 18, verse 14, it says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear the gospel, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Church, so many in our Bible Belt context claim the gospel as their worldview, and yet they live lives that are so evidently choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of the world. The cares of the world are just normal things. They're just normal things. Career, family, hobbies, not bad in themselves. But so many are over-prioritizing the normal things of daily life to the detriment of their spiritual walk. These are the people who go to church, right? But when it comes to reading their Bibles, or serving, or finding avenues for discipleship, they just find themselves habitually too busy. They've got too much on their plate for that. They can't be bothered by it. They're choked out by the cares of life. And so if you're looking for mature fruit in their life, you won't find it. Riches are exactly what they sound like, wealth and material possessions. So many, too, are choked by their own stuff, their own stuff. Their pursuit of more and better has so preoccupied them. Their goals completely revolve around newer and nicer so that they've crowded out any desire for the spiritual goals of holiness or discipline, anything like that. 
And pleasures, last but not least, are the secular creature comforts, as they've been called. Entertainment and never-ending experiences of leisure. Those choked by pleasure tend to eat up all their time with their eyes glued to one screen or another. Or they're out and about always trying to find fun stuff to do. I like fun stuff to do, but those who are choked by pleasure, they're always trying to find fun stuff to do instead of trying to find a church family to commit to. The constant desire to take in good food and drink and merriment has them totally distracted from the spiritual desires for community, worship, and mission. And the truth is, usually, these three come as a package deal, a choking trifecta, if you will, a fruit-shriveling, half-hearted trinity, the cares riches, and pleasures of life. And those who are choked by them should not be comforted, but concerned. As the New Testament warns us many times and in many ways against lingering love for the world that makes faith lukewarm. Romans 12 Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. James 4, James is a little more, says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul talks about Demas, who once was a man that did ministry with Paul. He says, in the end, Demas, in love with this present world, has departed, has deserted, sorry, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In 1 John 2.15, probably the most plain here, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So again, church, one has to be left scratching their head in regards to the enigma of Lot. While we can perhaps celebrate the mercy and the grace of God in counting such a compromised and conflicted man righteous, Unlike other righteous men and women in Scripture whose example we are to study so that we might imitate it, the hidden half-hearted righteousness of Lot is not one that we are to imitate. It's one that we are to relegate. So as we close, I want to encourage us to ask these basic heart assessment questions. Think these Three simple questions can be a real help in discerning if we have a a conflict of loves in our life between love for Christ and love for the world, if we have genuine, wholehearted faith, or if we have a lukewarm, half-hearted faith. So here's the first question. Do you consider Jesus to be Savior and Lord? Do you consider Jesus to be Savior and Lord? You know, as Jesus goes about preaching the kingdom of God and the gospel accounts, one thing um, you'll recognize is that uh, he often is challenging people to really consider what it means to follow him before he allows them to do so. One man comes and says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, right? Right? Jesus responds that birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a challenge of whether or not the man is willing to give up worldly comforts at times in order to be really committed to Jesus. At another point, Jesus tells some would-be disciples that following him 
will be like building a tower. He says you shouldn't start without first counting the cost and making sure you know you have what it takes to finish. And these are just a couple of instances, but one thing that anyone who is to really follow Jesus must understand is that Jesus' offer is not merely to accept him as Savior. It's to submit to him as Lord. That is, as king, as the one who has authority over every aspect of life. This is part of the cost, giving up our sense of autonomy for a commitment to the lordship of Christ. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus hauntingly says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? His point is clear. It's right to call him Lord. He is Lord, the sovereign one. But to call him the title without a willingness to follow through with its implications is hypocritical. Many a half-hearted believer loves to hear a message of salvation and forgiveness of sin, but they would be indignant at the demand that they follow the will of any person but themselves, even if that person is the God of the universe, Jesus Christ. Likely because similar to Lot, they, they love towing the line of the sinful culture and they don't want to separate themselves. They don't want to live separate from their worldly loves. So who is Jesus to you? Really, honestly, is he just Savior who's welcome to come along and give you a free gift of eternal life? Or is he also Lord, whose divine leadership you would willingly defer to daily? Here's number two. Is your life in any way characterized by self-denial? Is your life in any way characterized by self-denial? In Mark chapter 8, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So how does this How does this square up with our faith, church? Is the Jesus that you follow, is the Jesus that you follow one who ever expects anything of you? Does he expect you to sacrifice, to give up your time or your money in ways that maybe you'd rather not? Is your walk of faith like like an easy-peasy cakewalk? Or is it an often challenging crosswalk? Lot did not want to give Sodom up. He didn't want to give Sodom up. He had multiple chances. And in the end, the Lord all but had to pry his fingers off the city gates. Lot's wife decided that she'd rather die. She'd rather die than give up the love of her worldly lifestyle and her stuff. Would you rather die than give up the cares and riches and pleasures of your life? Or are you ready to die to yourself in pursuit of Christ in whatever degree that is expected of you? This is a hard message, guys. I can feel it. I know this is a hard message. But I must tell you that this is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. Sacrifice and self-denial are required because what we are offered 
in reconciliation with God and the joys of eternal life with him so far surpass the worth of anything in this broken world. Do you believe that? Amen. Praise God, brother. Uh, half-hearted people don't want to believe that. And finally, is your faith producing fruit? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's saying, in essence, the fruit doesn't lie. The fruit doesn't lie. What's coming up out of our heart and our mouths and our life, it's an accurate indication of who we really are. It's accurate. That's not to say we're perfect, friends. We addressed that early on in this talk. But genuine, wholehearted disciples of Jesus are growing in grace, consistently producing or growing towards the production of good, godly, gospel fruit. Half-hearted disciples are not. Half-hearted disciples are not because they're conflicted as to what kind of tree they even want to be. They claim the name of Jesus, but they're ingesting a diet of worldly cares, worldly riches, and worldly pleasures so that what they're putting out falls short of the fruit that a genuine Christian puts out. Humility, love, kindness, prayer, devotion, purity, a commitment to community, generosity, hospitality, worship, a burden for the lost, a desire to share the gospel, a heart to serve others. These are the kinds of fruit that genuine believers begin to produce that half-hearted ones do not. So, What do you do? What do you do if you see the sin of half-heartedness in yourself this morning? If maybe, what do you do if, if maybe there's a nagging thought that you're a lot more like Lot than you realized? What do you do? You want to know what to do? Repent. Repent. Friends, repentance is a good thing. It's a gift of grace that we're offered from God to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ. Don't linger in Sodom. Don't let Sodom get down in your Soul, don't cling to worldly loves. Don't let the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life keep you from full commitment to Jesus as your Lord. If you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, you still have time. You still have time. You don't have to end up like Lot, alone in the darkness, ashamed of how you've lived your life until now. There is redemption available. There's redemption available for anyone who will confess their half-heartedness and forsake their love of the world. That redemption is found in Jesus. Let's pray. God, this is a challenging, challenging message. God, you know well that I myself struggled and wrestled with this all week. And so, Father, I feel inadequate 
to proclaim a message like this. God, I ask that your word would not render void, that it would do all that you intend for it to do as it's sent out. And Father, for men and women in this room who are looking at their heart and they feel a lot like me, (laughs) they feel a lot like someone who is easily entangled and lingering love for the world, God, I pray that they wouldn't be comforted by the assessment of Lot, but that they would be comforted by the offer of repentance and the grace and the mercy that are found in the gospel, the opportunity to turn to you, to reject those worldly loves and to embrace Christ, not only as Savior, but as Lord and be redeemed. I love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.